my pastor said this thing once he was like it wasn't directly to me it was like in a room but i don't care i think even the people on youtube are speaking directly to me so i'm gonna pretend it was and he said like oh like if god erased all war from the world today we would be at war again tomorrow because it's just human nature and even looking at things you know like i used to have that like or oh obviously a utopia has no crime or no this or no war no famine and no poverty and everyone is this and you can still have like a democratic version of capitalism but everyone is being lifted up at the same time and you know like i used to have all of these things and then i was just but the older i get and the more i like learn about history and war and the fact that we've always been at war i don't know so i think though i do think what my utopia would be is a world where people get where people aren't actively inflicting harm on another human being and then where people get the chance to live out their body's lifespan I'm Kimberly Drew and you're listening to Your Attention Please a Hulu podcast with iHeartRadio Tomi Adeyemi has two best-selling fantasy novels under her belt with another one on the way. Children of Blood and Bone came out in 2018 and its sequel, Children of Virtue and Vengeance, followed in 2019. And as if that wasn't enough, Tomi's debut novel is already set to be turned into a film. I have been familiar with Tomi Adeyemi's work for some time now. I have always admired the way that she presents herself, especially in digital spaces, but I haven't had the privilege yet of reading her books. I want to start today's interview and episode with just that admission, um, because I know that many of you may not have read her books yet, but maybe we can all read them together. I'm so excited to break into Children of Blood and Bone. Cannot, cannot, cannot wait. Um, but I will say anecdotally, I was recently on vacation with a friend who was reading the book, and it was almost as if that book was our third travel companion because we would be in moments of complete silence, and then I'd heard laughter, and then I'd hear like, ooh, or like all of these gasps and reactions. And watching my friend devour the book really, really, really made me so excited to take my own adventure into Tomi's universe. I will also say that I probably didn't and have yet to read Tommy's books because I am admittedly not a big fantasy novel person, which is not cool or great. It is not something I'm proud of. I actually wish I could get more into fantasy. I was a kid who did not read Harry Potter, which is one of my great shames, but I'm also at peace with it for obvious reasons. Um, I'm way more of a historical nonfiction buff. But I will say that if working on this podcast has taught me anything, it's that stepping out of my comfort zone is a very good thing. Y'all listen to the esports episode, right? If any of y'all are out there listening, if anyone who is in the Black Girl Writers That Write Fantasy Club, I would like to apply for admission because you guys are killing it right now. Tracy K. Smith, N.K. Jemison, today's guest, Tomi Adeyemi, like, please let me hang out with you guys. Is there a seat? I hope there's a seat. But I will say, if anything, as you guys are building out your list for reading, and I say this to myself too, let's add some more fantasy. And specifically, let's add some more Black women writers to the list of books that we're reading. So, if she could have your attention, please. Our guest today, Tomi Adeyemi. 
Hi, I'm Tomi Aniemi, and I'm the author of Children of Blood and Bone and Children of Virtue and Vengeance. I'm so excited to talk to you. Really excited to just start the conversation uh, talking about your segment on your attention, please. Could you talk about what it was like to work on that project, where the idea came from, and what it was like to uh, put it together? Yeah, it was really it was really cool because this was my first time, I guess, doing an interview like that or even doing a project like that because I wouldn't even call it, like I would call maybe this an interview, but that wasn't really an interview. It was just like, for me, it was a chance to be more hands-on um, mm. and have more fun than I usually get to do whenever I'm doing a project. And it was also a nice, I think, ability for, or a nice opportunity for me to show more of myself. Um, yeah. Cause I think the last three years, both, how do I say this? I think both naturally and then also a little bit out of fear, I've kind of hidden behind my book or mm. hidden behind the books. Cause it's just more comfortable <laughs> than being yeah. like, Oh yes, I am creating these books. And so this, past, I don't know, I guess 2020 or, but recently I've made, tried to make the conscious shift to like step in front of the book and let it be a part of me as opposed to only me. So this was a really cool piece that reflected that and getting to, you know, work with the script and just have a lot of fun and be dramatic and theatrical, which comes very naturally to me. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just a really fun project and I love the way it turned out. I wonder for you as an author, do you feel, or what was that process like going from being, you know, this literary figure and then now you're coming, becoming into this like pop culture icon in your own way. What, how did you prepare yourself for that change? What, what was the impetus for that shift? It's, it's hard to pinpoint because all of these things are very gradual. Um, mm. I think it's something I realized kind of, I psychoanalyze myself and the world and everything around me constantly. Um, so something I realized was the journey I had to take to get from the desk job I was working at and to think like, okay, you know what, I'm going to, even though this is externally crazy to like leave this job that pays me very well and that isn't too difficult and does give me time to write, albeit that writing time is like 6 p.m. to midnight. But I was like, you know, this is a very safe way to do this, but I know like it's time to leave this job. It's time to go part-time. It's time to just start churning out these books until that can be my primary source of income. So that was like, I talk about life as if like you're driving a car. That was the first time I pulled off the highway and was like, okay, these aren't like well-paved roads, but I feel like I can navigate myself through them towards a destination that is going to be more fulfilling for me. And then I got to the book and then I sort of went back on the highway again, but it was just author highway. And so yeah. I kept coming up against this internal friction and it took me a long time to realize that it was just like, oh, this isn't, none of these highways work <laughs> for me. Essentially. I was like, I just got to be me. Like I can't, um, I'm not interested in, I'm just not interested in the ways things are done or the ways they're supposed to be done or this. It's just like, I just know, I just know the things I want to do and I know the ways I want to do them. So I think it was sort of 
a culmination of all those things over the past few years that made me realize like, oh, okay, the reason this isn't working is because you're driving on a highway that wasn't built for you. So you got to go back on those dirt roads and just, you know, put on Beyonce, put on Rihanna and just drive Shut through up and the drive. forest. Yeah, it really is. It's just, that's what I, you know, smooth jazz. You need less people in the car, no more minivan, get one of those Jeeps with the big tire on back and an open top. Like, you know, I really just sort of have put myself back in that car again. I think what's interesting uh, I recently left uh, a full-time job and pursued creative, you know, endeavors. And there is a, that moment where you kind of have to decide to de- depend on yourself and what you yeah. want to own. Um, there's something, you know, in that metaphor of, of, you know, veering off the path where it's almost sometimes better to be on these like untended roads, off-roading when you know that you're going towards the thing that you want uniquely for yourself. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, so much better because otherwise like if we're sticking with the metaphor it's like yes you can stay on the highway and the highway is is clearly a paved road there's clearly several other cars to it but like are you ending does it take you to any place that you're interested in being and a lot of times I find the answer is no and I think like a lot of people just they don't take the time to I'm like I have a lot of existential anxiety and like morbid anxiety. So I can't process days normally. I'm just like, Oh my gosh, I exist right now. Think of all the people who have ever existed and the people don't exist. And Oh my God, that historical event I learned about in third grade that really happened. And those people were real. And what did they do that day? They didn't live in black. You know, like that's how my mind goes. So I, I, when I was working at the production studio and like uploading ads to Twitter, I was just like, for me, I was like, you cannot make me do this. I'm going to die one day. <laughs> like right. how, how dare all of us disrespect my existence? <laughs> to, you that know? is a word. <laughs> that is a word. Is. I've I been... was just like, why are we acting like we're not going to die? Like I need to do something else right. or nothing. If not right. this. So I find when a celebrity or a public figure passes, there's that like, like everyone is slapped in the face with their own mortality. And there's that like, am I, is this, if it ends tomorrow or if it ends tonight, like, am I, am I happy with how I'm spending my time? And that was the first time where I could be like, yes, like, yes, I, the, the relationships I have in my life, I, I value them. Those people know that I value them. Um, And I tried very hard to be there for them. The work, the thing, the things I've spent my time working on, like, are the things I would want to be working on if I didn't have any more time left. If there was only, you know, it was just one of those, like I looked at my life and I was like, yes, this is, if it ends tonight, this is exactly what I would have wanted to do with these 26 years. I don't want to tell people that they're going to die one day or that they should be prepared for a natural disaster. I don't think that's my place, but I also at times feel like the need to just say, okay, I'm not telling you it's going to get bad, but let's just look at, what happened in China. Let's look at how, where Italy was two weeks ago and where they are today. Like deciding who gets to live and who, you know, I'm not telling you the apocalypse is coming, but let's just look, don't feel so safe and so complacent in, in your society or in your, I don't know. I, part of that I think is because of also writing and studying history 
and the act of really putting like like studying and thinking about war for two years and like ripping off that veil and then having characters where I'm trying to imagine what it would be like to be in that setting um, and really trying to put my, put myself there mentally and emotionally so I can write about it has just really ripped off the veil of like, oh, everything we've ever learned about in history, like things were chill and until one day they weren't. Like, that's all, you know, and I realized like, oh, it was normal. Like th these people were chilling and then they weren't. And these people were chilling. And like, I've been citing Arrival a lot because, you know, it's like everyone was chilling. And then all the heptapods came and suddenly they weren't. And it's literally over the course of a day. But I think as, 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 as humans, we, we forget how we're only a few days away from the heptapods coming. And it doesn't have to be spaceships it could be a pandemic like this it could be a natural disaster like I found the worst things I went through over the past three years there was always a best friend or a family member who who was scheduled to be with me or geographically aligned with me to get me through that moment and it was only when I looked back and started seeing like I called it like a love sandwich because with one perspective, I was only seeing all the horrible things that happened. But then when I flipped it around, I was like, oh, my God, how amazing is it that there was always someone you love there? Like immediately. That's insane. All the, the spiritual like Excel sheet, Google calendar things that had to line up for all of these moments for you to have that support. So I think that's why I try and give like I try and give wisdom on Sundays through my Insta story. And yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that. You you're so generous in helping other writers kind of push through and find their stories and, and accomplish some of their writing goals. If you could talk a little bit about that urge to do that, that'd be great. Essentially. If I find that I'm sending text or messages to like five to 10 friends that I'm like, oh, okay, it could be helpful to share this widely. And with writing and with the writing wisdom and the other stuff, I think it was just, so much of this for me, I felt was impossible or I didn't, I didn't even feel whenever I go to schools, I talk to them about how many years I spent not believing in myself. And so I'll have like a, like a chart and it'll be a timeline. And like 22 years of that timeline will be read because I didn't believe in myself and I didn't believe that it was possible for me to achieve my dreams. And then four years of that are green and that's where I did believe like, oh, I can achieve my dreams. And it's not even necessarily believing in myself. It's just the belief that like, oh, what I thought was impossible, I have now deemed is possible. Is it difficult? Yes, but it's possible. And that's even neurological. Like our brains do not, if we say something is impossible, then our brains, which are basically just computers designed to solve problems, will not waste one ounce, like one neuron trying to solve that impossible problem because the brain has to take shortcuts to navigate through the world. So if you say like, I can't walk on water, it's not going to spend any time walking on water. Now, if you say, I actually believe it's possible to walk on water, then it's like, okay, well, let's, let's figure out how, is there a physics dynamic to it? Is there a thing? Is there something? How does a paddleboard work? Is there a way to put paddleboards on? Like that's, it's, it's literally, it's an on off switch when, when you're talking about something being possible and impossible. So when you're talking about your dream being possible or just switching that, like switching that lever so that your brain thinks, you know what? My dream is possible. It's difficult, 
but it's possible. Suddenly it starts computing and making plans to get there. And that's how it was for me. I just feel very in touch with the part of me, with the person who didn't believe any of this was possible. And now this same person has two books on the bestsellers list. One book, which has been there for two years. Like none of this makes sense, but the whole point is like, just decide it's possible because clearly it's possible because people do it, you know? And there's, there's a more spiritual angle to it where people will say like, oh, like God doesn't put a dream in your heart that you don't have. So, oh, it was someone, they said it so well. It was one of a YouTuber I love. She goes, if it's in your heart, then it's in your cart. Meaning like you have the ability to check it out from the universe, but you actually have to, she goes, there's a limited window. And, and so I also believe like whether you believe in the spirituality of that or, or not, I do believe in the underlying psychological principle. If like, if you can imagine something and that thing is in your heart and it elicits this kind of little glittery heart emoji warmness in you, then it's because you have the ability to do it. Because you're working in within kind of this trilogy or and beyond, perhaps, if you want to continue to expand upon the series, how you move forward and either make pace or make peace with certain phases of of the of the, the story as it progresses. Of course, people have such a romantic tie to the writing that you're doing. Um, I wonder how you overcome that or if you feel that pressure as especially um, you're moving forward and building out the trilogy. Do you feel like you, the, the books are um, in competition with each other or do you feel like outside pressures? What does that look like for you? Or are you like, I'm going to quiet this voice and just get my work done? For me, I've always been like extra. Um, and so I would compare it to like the way we think about artists. Like when you think of Beyonce, you probably most like you probably think of homecoming because that was most recent. But like a little bit before that, you think of Lemonade. And a little bit before that, you think of Beyonce, the self-titled album with 17 music videos. And then a little bit before that, you think of Four. So that's more how I see my relationship with you. Because it's like, I can't write 30 children of blood and bone books. I don't, (laughs) I don't want to say I don't care enough. (laughs) But it's just like, I just, there's not, there's stories to tell, but there's not like, I can't. Do I want there to be like bad spinoffs of the adaptation in 20 years? Of course. I will know I've done it if we start having like super jank spinoffs of like that was a trash film, but it was cool to be back in Arisha like that. That's the ultimate goal. So I do want this world built up like I want I want the adaptations to be crazy. And everybody wants to get bootlegged. Yeah, you it's know, like that's what I want. It's like I want the theme park, I want the marketplace, I want the pirate ship battle ride, I want like eight hundred movies. Tyler, the creator, said this thing um, during this recent Grammys, like his interview, and someone asked him, like, "Oh, how does it feel to win like the Urban Album or something?" And he's like, "On one hand, it's a huge honor." He goes, "On the other hand, there's this sense that like." You know, for black creators, you just put the word urban in front of it and give them an award there when they should just be judged in the regular categories for their contributions. It's like it's kind of like when your cousins like hand you a controller that's not plugged in. So you'll stop asking if you can play the game. And 
that metaphor really stuck with me. That's kind of also what I think life is. It's just like, okay, you have the controller. You don't know when your cousin's going to take it from you. And if you're playing Mario Kart, yes, you're going to crash back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But eventually you'll get a mushroom and maybe you'll even get a star. And when you get that star, you're going to crash even harder. But it's like, it's just like, just play, just play, just play your life. Just play your life while you have it, while you have the controller. Especially because there's just so much pressure around success and especially for black creatives. It's not just about holding this controller without um, connection. It's like there might not even be the cord that connects you, but there's still this expectation of excellence and participation and kindness and generosity. There's an incredible weight that's on all of us and it's hard not to pop off. I think low key, (laughs) I was telling someone like, I, I'm moving into this phase of like really loving everything I get to do now and all the things that I hope to get to do. And at the same sense though, it, it, none of it beats being on the couch with my dog, eating Thai food and watching bachelor. And mm. a lot of times people think like, no, you're joking. I was like, no, like I have a lot of fun <laughs> watching screaming at my television about all of the poor choices and toxic psychological behaviors that are playing out in real time. And I really like Thai food. And so I think it's just like, at least for me, this, this might've been a lesson from Dave Chappelle too, but also like informed by my experiences with the first two books and informed by the moments where things were just really, really bad. Um, and that it was just really, that it was just a really, really painful part of the process. It just sort of getting out of that left me with this sense of calm of like, Mm -hmm. I love, I love this, but if all goes away tomorrow, like it's still not the core of my identity. It's my job. And I've read, I mean, I spent what, I spent almost 20 years writing without anyone reading, you know? Yeah. So it's a, if it goes back to that, I think it's just, I think people get in trouble when they kind of tie this metaphorical noose around their neck and it's either the attention or it's the money or it's the acclaim. Like, and like, if you need those things, then you're always holding yourself hostage. Right. And so and there's no room me, for joy. Yeah, there's no room for joy. There's no room for joy. I guess I try and be as much of a self-contained unit as possible. And so... Which is a gift and and a very powerful place to be in. I think we all have to do it in some way, shape or form. But that's been... I found that's when I felt happiest. Um, That's when I felt most sane, most in control. When I'm like, oh, this is my job. The same way I used to go into this office and upload ads to Twitter. Like that was my job. And so making it my job and my profession, but not my life, um, I think has helped balance out a lot of those other pressures. Because I also put a lot of pressure on myself to create, like, amazing things. Like, I'm never satisfied with anything. I'm still not satisfied with the first two books. So I don't need the, like, I put enough pressure on myself to make it as good as possible. So I know I don't need to outsource that. I love it. Well, we have two questions um, from some folks who have watched 
your segment on your attention, please. Oh, cool. Um, okay. <laughs> so our, our first question is from Pierre in Ohio. Pierre says, or Pierre asks, I should say, uh, Tommy, do you pull any inspiration from your personal experiences when writing? Oh, yeah. They're all, everything I've ever written is just memoir, fantasy, fan fiction. And so it's, it's a lot of the questions I was getting when book two first came out is like, oh, it's so dark. And I was like, yes, <laughs> I was in a very dark place. And so um, it's, I use, I mine as much from myself and from the people in my life as possible. And mostly I really mind my emotional truths because I think that's what makes art resonate when it's like, whether it's a fantasy or whether it's real, it's like when there's, there are universal emotional truths that every human being, unless you have like an intense psychological disorder, that's my like Ravenclaw thing. I was like, well, do sociopaths feel that? So I don't know. But the average human being, <laughs> um, we all experience these same emotional truths, whether they're positive emotional truths or negative emotional truths. So I really focus on that. And it helps make the writing. Um, I think it, I think then the readers feel it, but then also personally, it does help me to it's just, it's weird to see your own life as a story because lives aren't actually stories, but they are stories. And so for me, I see different parts of my life like books. And so to write things for Zaylee and then be like, oh my gosh, this is me living out this thing. This is me living out this. Like to, I, it's in a way writing it allows me to see my own character arc because whatever Zaylee is dealing with is usually what I need to deal with and overcome. Um, and then it's the same with the other characters that everyone just represents like a different side of me. And I always say they have the best parts of me and the worst parts of me. So, so yeah, it's, I think that's why part of the times I'm like, I don't know if this is creative. I'm just, <laughs> this is just the information and the data I have from my own personal experiences. So yeah, I think it's good to make stories personal. Our next question comes from an anonymous Hulu subscriber. I want to know, what is the key to being a best-selling author and how does it feel? Uh, I think the key to being a best-selling author is to be relentless about fighting for yourself um, and for your book. And yeah, because I've seen, especially having being in a place now where I've seen and met a lot of like best-selling authors or commercially successful authors. That is the one common thread. It's not about like, I mean, one, they, they care. They care about their stories. They don't write things that they don't care about. Um, and they try and do their best. So I think that's a big part of it. But I also think there's that relentlessness, um, not settling, knowing you're going to have to do, even as someone who's had a book on the best sellers list for two years, um, you know, it's like, I basically did my cover. I had to do a lot of my editing. I'm very, very intense about my marketing. I'm intense about my, you know, like it's not, you can't hand over the reins and expect a lot of success because no one is going to care or fight for your story or yourself the way you will. So I think the earlier you can realize that and the earlier you can say, okay, I want, you know, I had a friend 
literally say, I want to be a New York Times bestselling author. And then she busted her butt, you know, when no one else believed in her. She busted her butt for years and she got there. And, you know, so it's like you again, it's not that it's impossible. It is difficult, but it has to be your like, okay, I'm the protagonist. This is my goal. Now here are all the obstacles in my way. Let me fight them. And, it, and how does it feel? It's still surreal. It's still very surreal. There's this incredible high, like the first time you see your name on this list in which you, when you didn't even think you would ever really have a book out one day. Um, so there is that high and that disbelief. And then it's mostly surreal. It, all of this stuff still feels very surreal. So for this next segment, um, this is your opportunity to just sound off about anything that's on your mind. It can be anything that has been like weighing on your mind heavily or is exciting to you, something in the news, something that you recently fell in love with. Um, but just two minutes, all you go. Huh, okay. What has been consistently on my mind and what has been that just keeps coming up either through the things I'm reading or the things I'm hearing is just the importance of having the right people in your car. So I'm going all the way back to our driving metaphor. It's like you have one car and there's a difference between having that car full of people who love and support you that you also love and support and having that car full of people who are draining literally the life from you, who are like dumping all the gas out or playing like, I don't want to say country music because some people love country music. But like if I was driving across my life and someone was like, we can only listen to like Blake Sheldon, you know, like that's not a good situation for me. So <laughs> I think it's just it's. It makes a world of difference. We don't think we have that much power over the people that we allow into our car um, and the people that we say, like, you know, you can't be in this car anymore. But you do. You have full control over that. And a lot of the a lot of the bad things I went through was because I had people in my car that I shouldn't have had. And so when I finally said you know, not even, not even in a big or explosive way. Just when I finally said, you're like, you know what? I don't have a minivan anymore. I have a Jeep. It has four seats. These are the people filling them. Like, I wish you the best on this journey. My life changed and it got, it was so much better. And it's weird to say you don't have to talk or interact with people who cause you pain um, or who like make you cry, but you don't, you actually don't. It was a funny realization. <laughs> so that's been, I guess, the thing I'm most passionate about is I think we, as humans, we tend to be really complacent, not just with like our lives, but also with the people in our lives. And I say people can be anchor. People are usually anchors or balloons. So it's like an anchor pulls you down. They drain you. They drain your time, your energy, your resources, your money. Um, and balloons lift you up. They make they give they they make you feel so euphoric. You know, they make you cry because you're laughing so hard or because you're so proud of them, you know? And I will just say I think that it can be our life's work to fill our lives with anchors and and that no, no, sorry, to fill our lives with balloons. 
<laughs> I think most of the time we kind of complacently fill our lives with anchors without realizing it. Love. Yeah. Don't feel weird about wanting to spend the time that you exist on this planet with people who lift you up. I was really surprised to hear about Tommy's career before she veered off that highway and towards being a full-time writer. I think a lot of times it's always helpful to learn about the work that our heroes were doing while they were making some of our favorite books. At the end of the day, writers are human. At the end of the day, every story starts with a single word, with a single letter. It's not all about pure magic. You know, you look at a at especially like Tomy's books are very long and it can be sort of intimidating to think about how to get through that story and how to um, be able to articulate an idea as fully as some authors are capable of doing. And so it's really always such a gift to hear any writer articulate the journey of their lives. I did really love to find another partner and thinking morbidly, very casually, you know, it's real. And I think oftentimes we just, we shy away from these conversations. And um, it was just really nice to talk to another person who sees world, sees and makes and understands worlds in ways uh, that don't shy away from difficult conversation. I hope that anyone who's out there and listens to today's episode understands that there is always an opportunity to take a turn at that exit towards the thing that you want to accomplish. Those things can be large or small, but they are always on offer and available to you. And as Chomi mentioned, it's so incredibly important for us to think about who is in the car with us, who is riding shotgun, okay? Think about it. Make sure that your whip is fit with the team that you want for this next journey in your life. People out there should absolutely join me in reading Children of Blood and Bone if you haven't already. Uh, follow Tomi's work on social media. Tune into her beautiful sermons to the world about writing and just her thinking because she is a person who I, I think after today's conversation, it was just so great to hear. And I mean, and this is such a theme for our guests. Shout out to all of y'all. But Tommy, you know, not unlike our other guests, is a person that loves other people. And so I, I think that it's important for anyone uh, to continue to keep up with her universe building as a writer and universe building as a participant in community um, just to see what love looks like in action. And not to sound like a Hallmark card, but we really need that energy right now. That is all that we have for today, but we'll be back next week with more Black Excellence. For now, I will leave you with this. Don't be afraid to find what you love, share it with the world, and scream from the mountaintop, your attention, please. <laughs> <laughs>